Hello, friends. Thank you. When I was in my uh, when I was in my twenties, I lived and worked in uh, South Africa for about six years or so, mostly in in Cape Town, and I spent a lot of time trying to learn uh, some of the local languages there, including one language that was called Afrikaans. And so as I was learning, uh, a friend of mine gave me this, this novel that was written uh, in Afrikaans by a South African writer. And it wasn't something super difficult to read. Uh, it, was, it was sort of like a paperback you know, murder mystery thriller. And so it, it was something I could kind of read like very slowly, but sort of learn some new vocabulary along the way. So I started reading this book and it starts out with like some action right off the bat. A young woman has just been murdered and her best friend is now on the run through the streets of Cape Town being chased by this mysterious killer. And I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, I've actually like, I've never read a novel set in a city that I live in before. It was kind of interesting. This, this character is running past all of these streets and these landmarks that I know and I'm like, it's kind of cool. I feel like I'm like, connecting with this novel in a different sort of way. And then a couple of pages in, I, I discovered that this young woman, who's kind of the hero of the book, I discovered this young woman and her friend who was killed are both young Americans living in South Africa. And I'm like, wow, I guess I'm, like, I'm really connecting with this book now, but to the point where I'm starting to wonder, like, is my friend who gave this book to me trying to send me some kind of message? No, she wasn't, but it was, it was just kind of interesting. It was fun. So this young woman is being chased through the streets. That scene ends on a cliffhanger. Cut to the next morning. Two South African detectives have discovered the body of the first victim who was killed, and they are now searching her body for clues to try and figure out her identity. They open her backpack. This card falls out. The card has written on it the name and address of the store where the backpack was purchased. And when I read the address, I freeze, and I just like stare at it for about 10 minutes or so, because the store's address is a street in my hometown in Indiana. And the name of the store is a real hunting and camping store that is at that location. I've been inside that store. I own a pair of hiking boots from that store. And at that point, it's like, what is, what is happening right now? Why is any of this in an Afrikaans novel? Am I being pranked? Like, this cannot possibly be real. There's this, this later scene we flash to the, to the hero's father who's sitting at home, and he's just about to get word that his daughter is missing. And the book describes him as sitting at his house on the street where my high school was, reading about Purdue football, which is the university that was close to us, and reading about their coach, Joe Tiller, who is a man that I have met. He was the football coach in the early aughts at Purdue when I was in high school. And I'm like, what is going on? Was this book written specifically for me? Like in the Venn diagram of like Afrikaans literature and like turn of the century Big Ten football, am I like the one person <laughs> on earth who is in that particular overlap. My South African friend who gave me this book had no idea where I was from. I, I don't know why the author chose my hometown. He made enough 
mistakes that you could kind of tell he had never been there. He, he only knew sort of what you could learn from Google. And so it was all just, it was surreal. And it was an interesting time for me to ask, God, are, are you trying to tell me something here? It was just a very unique experience and, and a hard one to describe. It's kind of, I'm, I'm even wondering right now sort of whether you can fully connect with this. I, I don't know. Imagine being in a foreign country, reading a book in a foreign language about a foreign city, and then suddenly there's a scene set inside your elementary school, and one of the characters is your third grade teacher. And the funny thing about it is that I feel like I often have a similar sort of experience around reading the Bible. Sometimes the Bible feels very distant. Sometimes it feels like what it is on some level, which is a collection of writing in a foreign language about a very different time and place. And at other moments, the Bible feels like what it also is, which is God's word for me. It feels like it is talking to me about something that just happened. It's, it's folding into its story my daily life. I think many of us have those moments. Sometimes we, we go through seasons where Scripture feels alive like that all the time. Sometimes we wish we could just sort of live in that space. It's all a little bit mysterious to me, but while any of us can have those moments, it's, it's also hard even then to fully describe like the personal significance of them to someone else. We each one of us has to kind of go looking for our lives in Scripture. Sometimes we have to look hard, Sometimes it feels very easy. And so I want to talk to you today about a, a scripture that has been very easy for me to see my life in lately, but I don't, I don't know if it will feel easy for you. But I would ask for you to look for yourself. Expect to see your life in this passage. Ask God where your thoughts and your feelings in your daily life fit in here. And I want to pray that for us as we begin. Won't you pray with me? Lord, we, we trust that in this moment, we are somehow sitting in some overlap between our, our day-to-day experience and what you want to say to us right now. So speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. I want to start with a saying of Jesus. Just a, a sentence from Scripture, and then we will kind of keep zooming out, trying to sort of expand the picture a little bit. It's a, it's a sentence from Luke chapter 12, although it also appears in, in Matthew 6, but it's this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There are probably many different ways to read this sentence, but in general, interpreters tend to read it more figuratively. Most people understand it as a kind of metaphor, and a metaphor that is useful for discernment in a way. They read this to mean something like, if, if you want to know where someone's heart is at, look at the things that they value the most. If someone spends all their time trying to get rich, then their heart is consumed by status and wealth. If, if someone spends all their time trying to feel safe, their heart must be troubled, and they are searching, longing for security. And if we zoom out a little bit, yeah, that, that reading makes sense. In this previous verse, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. 
In other words, use your resources to pursue God's priorities, is how we typically read this passage. Invest yourself in loving people and being obedient and doing things that are right and good, and, and then you will know that your heart is truly set on the things of God. And so maybe in a way, this, this verse is kind of just Jesus' way of saying, put your money where your mouth is. And read in that way, when, when you try to take these verses very seriously, they become a kind of test that you can even apply to yourself. I say that I care about God. I want my heart to be set on God. But where is my treasure? Am I putting my resources of time and effort and money into God's priorities? Or am I investing in the wrong things? Career, money, reputation, approval, influence, accomplishment, pleasure. There was a, a long stretch in my life where I was, I was trying to take these verses as seriously as I knew how. I was constantly putting someone to the test. I, at first, I was testing God. It was kind of like, God, if, if I live right, if I do good, if I give away my money, will you provide more and more abundance? And God did provide, but I also became convicted that maybe I shouldn't be testing God in this way. Maybe these verses are actually more of a test that I should apply to myself, to my own heart. Have I given my heart totally over to God? Am I willing to give away everything else, invest all my treasure in the kingdom? That was a test that I was often failing, but, but one that I was also always striving harder for. I was always doing more, trying to sacrifice more, trying to take more risks in order to pass that test. From the outside, I probably looked faithful in some ways, but also a little anxious, maybe even a little obsessive, and that's because that's how I felt, that I was satisfied in one sense because I was, I was genuinely excited to follow God, but also, on some level, deeply afraid that I was never really going to get it right. The, the first prominent uh, Christian theologian who was, who was born and raised on the American continent was a, a man named Jonathan Edwards. He was a very early Yale graduate. There's still a center and a college uh, named after him at Yale. In his late teens and 20s, he would keep like these detailed accounts, almost like a, an old-timey Excel spreadsheet of all of his sins. And he would assign himself a score each day for sort of how his heart was improving in righteousness. And for this reason, despite being a very faithful guy, he was extremely worried through his 20s about whether he was even a Christian. He looked at all of these accounts of his sins and all the times when he felt indifferent to God and he thought, I don't always treasure God as much as I should. So does my heart even belong to God? Am I saved? He experienced a lot of anxiety about that question. And when I was a baby Christian reading him in my 20s, I was thinking, wow, like if this guy doesn't know that he's saved, I should have a lot of questions because I'm, I'm nowhere near as good as this guy. And it's tempting then to associate that feeling of anxiety about your goodness, to think of it as a kind of humility, and then to think of that as a kind of holiness. Like real saints don't even know that they're saints. Real saints think that they're trash, even while they're doing, like, all these crazy miracles and whatever. And that combo is actually what you really need in order to be a saint. Like, 
Saints are so humble because they're really like so stressed out about how terrible they are, even though they are so much better at loving God than the rest of us. And when I put it that way, it sounds extreme, and yet a lot of us intuitively kind of put ourselves to a similar sort of test. As a, as a pastor, I meet a lot of people, even people in this room, who have kind of romantic memories about a time in their life when they were passionate for God, when they were on fire for God. And what they often mean is a time when they loved God and they were willing to put everything on the line for God and it was thrilling and also a little scary, but it was like anything is possible. I might even become a saint here. But also there was then some degree of anxiety about their goodness, but also maybe that's the secret to being a saint. It all felt very high stakes, and yet now then, a, a few months later or years later or a decade later, they have cooled off, and they start to wonder, am I less stressed now because I just kind of gave up on being good? Did I, did I stop worrying about ob obedience because I achieved it, or did I just kind of stop caring? Did I start worrying about other stuff more than the things of God? And part of them then thinks, was I better off when Christian life was intense and scary and everything was at stake? Maybe that's just what it feels like when you, when you live according to, to Luke 12, 34. Like, I, I, I kind of miss that. It, it didn't always feel good, but it didn't always feel bad, but it always felt momentous. It always felt like I was preparing to pass the most important test of my life. I lived inside of that intensity for a pretty long time uh, in my life. Not as long as some people, but for many years in my own way. It's probably one of the things that led me to South Africa in the first place. This fear I had about whether I was really willing to go all the way. To really invest all of my treasure in God's priorities. And over time, I, I, don't, think I, I don't think I cooled off exactly, but something did change. I started to notice that I didn't always like what this intensity was producing in me. I said I was doing it for Jesus' sake, but it didn't always seem to actually be leading me to Jesus in the end. To prove that, that my heart was set on God, I took a lot of risks. I I'd put myself in some objectively dangerous situations at times. And it's not, it's really genuinely not the, the risk itself that I regret. But I look at some of those moments now. For instance, what, there was a, at the time, Cape Town was like competing with Guatemala City for murder capital of the world. And there were certain roads, not many, but certain roads that you just did not, weren't supposed to drive on because the risk of carjacking or kidnapping was just too high. But sometimes you couldn't avoid driving on them and so you would just go really fast and you would try not to stop, not even for like a stoplight, uh, which, I mean, obviously, those, are, those were prime locations for carjackings, but also stoplights only work if people are willing to stop with them, stop for them. So it was just always sort of dangerous in, in some way. And the national police would try to patrol the road, but there were a number of cases where the police were themselves attacked by armed gangs, and the police had their cars and weapons captured. And so it was just like lawless territory. And if for some reason your car broke down along one of those roads, it was terrifying. I had a friend from, from Cameroon who was 
covered in scars because when he had been in South Africa for only about a month, not really knowing anything, he had stopped on one of these roads and he had been uh, attacked by someone with a machete and he had to escaped with his life by just running away. If you saw someone stranded on one of these roads as you were driving past, you faced a really hard call. Their life was in danger. Would you stop to help them and put your life in danger? I had a friend of a friend who stopped to help a stranded motorist, and it turned out that the whole thing was an ambush, and he was murdered. And as crazy as all of this might sound, it it suddenly helped me make sense in a new way of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because some of those roads in Cape Town were not unlike how it would have felt traveling between cities in Jesus' time. And so this then became one version of the big test in my life. Did I have enough faith, enough courage, enough heart for God to follow Jesus' words about the Good Samaritan, to stop, to show compassion, to people along these roads. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But there's this one case that I I remember in particular where I I saw a woman standing next to her car flagging me down. And when I pulled over and got close to her, I realized that I knew this woman, that she was uh, one of the, the drug addicts who hung around the church where I worked. And she didn't recognize me at first, but I recognized her And I was still kind of cautiously willing to help her, but it didn't take me more than a a couple minutes and a few questions to realize that her car was working just fine. She was just flagging people down, telling them that she needed cash for gas so that she could spend it on drugs. And at that moment, I lost my mind. I was shouting at her. I was so mad that... She had put her life and my life and the lives of other people in danger for this. But if I was honest, I was really mad at myself. I was, it was like, I'm driving away from here and I don't even get to feel like a saint or a hero. I feel like an idiot that you just tricked. And I I don't like that feeling. You stole a good story from me. You took from me the chance to say, look at me, I'm very courageous and holy. And that was how I felt. Like, I'm I'm out here trying to prove something that I would put it all on the line for God, and now I feel stupid for even trying, and I feel like now I'm failing a test. And I'm mad at you for making me feel that way, and I'm just mad at myself. And I'm not saying that everybody who does a good deed is as neurotic about it as I am sometimes, but... I'm just saying that I started to recognize in myself stuff that didn't exactly seem to come from God. Where was Jesus at that moment? Is this really why he gave me like these words from Luke? Was he really hoping that I would end up here feeling scared and defensive and ashamed and screaming at a meth addict on the side of the road? The more that I reflected on what was happening to me, the more I wondered why I was so focused on using verse 34 as a test to apply to myself. When when Scripture doesn't mention this as a test or a judgment to be used against anyone, including myself. In fact, when we, we zoom out a little bit more, we read this at the beginning of the section. This is the context for everything else. Do not be afraid, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
I kept reading verse 34 as a kind of question. Do I deserve the kingdom? Is my heart pure enough? When Jesus had been saying all along, you don't have any reason to worry. The kingdom is not something you can deserve. It's a gift to you. It's something the Father gives. It's a gift that is already secure. Your Father will give it to you. It's a promise, and not because the Father is obligated to do so, but because of his delight, his good pleasure. He is happy, he is eager to give it to you, even while your hearts are sinful and divided and confused. And so if verse 34 is seeking out some kind of purity of heart, it is not a purity that you can achieve by just testing yourself. It is a purity that was gifted to you freely. It's not your hearts that are pure. It is God's love that is pure, and that love is freely given before you do anything else. We have been in a, in a series looking at verses like uh, Luke 12, 32, where God reminds us that we don't need to be afraid. Don't need to be afraid of what? Well, anything, everything, sickness, death, loss, poverty, humiliation, opposition. None of the things that people often fear. In fact, we don't even need to be afraid of our own sin. We don't need to be afraid of whether our hearts are pure enough. We don't need to fear our own fear, our own hesitance, our, our lack of courage in following Jesus. Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock. He doesn't say, do not be afraid, my junior shepherds, my shepherd interns. But that's often how we read Scripture, as if there is a test in front of us. Are we becoming good enough shepherds? Are we becoming enough like Jesus to deserve the kingdom? But Jesus doesn't call us fellow shepherds or shepherds in training. He calls us his flock. Do you expect a sheep to later become a shepherd? Do you expect a sheep to learn how to fight off wolves? No, you expect a sheep to be a sheep. You expect that sheep will always need a shepherd, and that's what Jesus promises to be for us. Jesus calls us his flock precisely because we are weak. We are vulnerable. We are often scared. If you ever like, start raising chickens in your, in your backyard, you will suddenly discover that there are far more predators in your neighborhood than you previously realized. The shepherd knows that there are dangers in the world. You want to find out how many predators you are, there are, get yourself a flock. The shepherd understands why his flock would be afraid and confused and weak. There are predators, and they are sheep. And that's exactly why he is ready to be our shepherd, why he would delight in it. When I read verse 32... It even changes some of how I, I see the passage before that, which is this well-known passage where Jesus says things like, why are, why are you worried about anything? Look at the birds. Look at the flowers of the field. God, God provides for all of them, so don't worry. And one of the things that I sometimes wonder about this passage is, do I want to be dressed like a flower? Do I want to eat like a bird? Would I be satisfied with that? And of course, God, God isn't promising to give me a bird-sized portion of food. 
He's promising how much more than that. But when I read these verses thinking first about my effort, about what I deserve, I imagine that much more just means much more of what I could earn for myself. God gives a bird-sized portion of food to a bird. He can give a human-sized portion of food to a human. And maybe if I really have the faith, I can get the whole buffet, everything that I can eat and more. But when I read these verses believing that God wants to give me a kingdom first, a new world for the sake of his good pleasure, it creates even more imagination in me. What if how much more doesn't mean a lot of food? What if it means an entirely different relationship to food? What if God really wants to help me understand what Jesus says elsewhere, that humans don't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? What if God doesn't want to make me more righteous so that I can meet anybody, any one of your moral standards? What if God wants to give me how much more, an entirely new understanding of his goodness and my worth? What if God doesn't want me to pass a test? What if God wants to give me how much more? What if God wants me to live beyond tests, in a world where a test has nothing that it can say about me? Stepping out in faith often feels risky, but not, not all risks are equal. And when I was younger, I often took risks that were first about trying to prove something to myself. I would put it all on the line just to show myself that I was courageous, to show myself that I really believed. But what, if it looked, what would it look like if I took the risk of believing that God is good? If I took the risk of believing that he has how much more in store for me, that I can depend on him to do a much bigger work in my life than I ever imagined. It might still feel risky, but it would be a risk that doesn't lead to more fear, but to less fear, to, to more of God. And so now, when I, when I read verse 34, I almost read it more literally than I ever did before. I don't read it as a metaphor for testing my heart. I read it as an invitation. Entrust your treasure to God, believing that he is the giver of treasure. And see how it then changes your heart. My heart is easily confused, so I don't want to risk anything on anything that depends on my purity of heart. But I don't have to. Take a risk on God's love. Put a little of your treasure into the hope of God's goodness and see what that does to your heart. Some of you uh, know our friend Sanjayan. He, he worshiped at ECV over the course of five years in grad school. And uh, a few weeks ago, he moved back to his home country of Sri Lanka. Sanjayan, when he first arrived, I remember he was a little bit confused uh, about ECV. And in particular, he was confused by this emphasis that we put on Sabbath. That was very strange to him. What do you mean you're saying I should take a literal Sabbath once a week to rest from my work? That was an, a new idea for him. But he decided to take that risk. I'm, I'm going to Sabbath once a week. It feels like a risk because he's supposed to be here studying as hard as he can in order to succeed at his career. And at first, you take that kind of risk thinking to yourself, okay, well, 
Maybe if I lose this day of work, God will just kind of miraculously make up for it, sort of multiply the rest of my work. I'll still be the best in my class, but now with less effort. But that doesn't always work out. And then it's possible to think, okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm not going to put God to the test in that way. I'm going to focus on what's going on in my heart. I'm going to take a Sabbath just because I'm learning to take the loss. I'm learning how to sacrifice my class rank for God's sake. I'm going to prove something about my dedication to God, even if I don't win as many prizes as, as I could. But over time, Sanjay stuck with this kind of investment, and he, he kept putting the treasure of his time in, into the hope of God's goodness. And as he did, something much deeper shifted in him. What if God has how much more in store for me than just getting good grades? What if these metrics of success that everyone around me is striving for, what if they really genuinely have no say over my kingdom purpose? What if I can work less because I'm free from performance? And then what if I don't put a new expectation on myself to prove my dedication to God by dropping out? But what if God's love actually makes me free to keep doing this work, but now simply for joy, for God's pleasure? What if I can be free even from having to prove to myself that I don't care about worldly success? What if there is nothing to prove? What if God already plans to give me the kingdom? What if fear is not something even to overcome but to put behind me entirely? Sanjay uh, didn't just grow over five years because he started taking a Sabbath. There were, there were a lot of different ways that he was putting his hope in God's goodness. And a few weeks ago before he left town, he and I met together because he wanted to talk through a, a rule of life. This is a phrase that, that Bill Elander has introduced to us at ECV, which is, it's just a plan for dedicating some of the treasure of our time and attention to God in a way that leads to freedom rather than fear. Sanjayan was making a rule of life for himself as he returned to Sri Lanka, and it consisted of some simple habits and routines and even experiments he wanted to try, trusting that Jesus is his good shepherd. And he had seen how these investments had given him new freedom to follow God. It was the very thing that had shaped some of the choices that he was making. It gave him freedom to make kind of an unusual decision, which is that he was going back to teach at a, a small university in a very poor part of Sri Lanka among a community that he cares about. But but because he's, he's doing that because he's free from having to succeed on the terms set for him by some Western definition of success to go be a professor at Oxford or Yale or whatever. But he's also not leaving academia. He, he's going to keep doing this work that he loves because he's also free from having to prove that he would sacrifice his career for the sake of the poor. He's free to simply do what God has laid on his heart. I'm going to invite the worship team forward as we start to, to transition into a time of prayer. But over, over the years, I have seen many ECVers take the risk of believing that God might actually be good, and that God might actually love them, and that God might actually be for them. Those risks can be small or large. It could be the risk of starting a conversation with a stranger without fearing rejection anymore. 
It could be the decision to say no to an obligation without fearing that it makes you a selfish person. It could be the decision to say yes to an obligation without fearing that you are surrendering your freedom. I've seen people start new careers, start new businesses, leave businesses to go into full-time ministry, drop out of academic programs that were killing them, start up new academic programs that reflected their deep calling, commit themselves to new relationships, all of it as a, a kind of experiment, a wager on what if God is actually good? What if he really has how much more than I can imagine in store for me? So I want to leave you with a few questions uh, to consider and to take to God in our, in our time of worship and prayer. First, have, have you ever found yourself avoiding God out of shame, believing that your heart is not pure enough to receive him? Do you avoid God because you're, you know you're not getting it right? You, you know that you don't treasure him as much as he deserves. And you then expect him to ask things of you that you don't really trust yourself to be able to give to him. So why ask? Why go near at all? And secondly, where can you risk your resources on the hope that God is good and gentle, like, dare I say, someone who delights in being your shepherd? You're in a very unique place right now. And by place, I mean the chair that you're sitting in. You're in the overlap between your world and God's goodness and power. At that intersection, there is this moment, this life that you are living. The intersection of all of humanity's brokenness and sinfulness and all of God's perfect plan is you. You don't have to be ashamed that you are bringing to God this whole mess of humanity's sinfulness and brokenness. You're not subtracting from what God wants to do. It is required for you to be exactly where God planned for you to be. You are bringing exactly what he expected you to bring and exactly the thing needed for his good purposes to be fulfilled. We're going to transition in just a moment uh, to pray, and I'm going to invite someone else to, to share some of their sense of what God is doing in this moment. But I just want to name or, or to mention a sense that there, there are some of you who keep coming to church regularly, occasionally, not very often, hoping that it and expecting that you will become better, that it will make your life better, and it's not working. And I think the Lord just wants to say to you, come, all who are weary. Come as you are, come with your burdens, come with your fears. Come, I'm going to take all of that 
from you. All this fear and all this anxiety and all this feeling of just not enoughness, all this sense that you, of disappointment that you feel that life is just not going how you intended or how it should, the Lord says, I want to take all of that from you. Let me carry that for you. We're going to have prayer ministers over on one side in just a moment. What will it take for you to give all of that over to God? Maybe you feel like you need help giving it over to God. That's what these folks are for, to stand with you in that. What test do you feel like you're failing? There's nothing here that needs to be proven and nobody here that needs to be impressed. 